Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Lost in Postulation. I'm Nicola Volpi, and I'm joined by a man who routinely gives me pep talks before coming into the studio, telling me that we are pirates and how much he loves it out here in the podcast universe. It's Neil Fitzpatrick. Absolutely. Look at that leadership from Logan Roy. My God. It's probably already a bit uh, a bit dated to the to the up-to-date listener who's seen episode three since then. But wow, I, I'm on the... I think you can go two ways with that speech. You can either say it's like super cringe and a bit old school, or you can say it's just compelling leadership material. And I think it's, I think it's the latter. Uh, for anyone yeah. who doesn't know Succession, we're talking about a very uh, notable scene from the last episode. But uh, I'll tell no, you who it's definitely not aged for, and that's me. I've watched it about once a day for the past week, <laughs> just that like four-minute clip, and it just gets me all riled up. I don't know what it is. It's so, so good. It's Yeah, it's out of its time, like you said, a bit mm. old school uh, and mm. probably not uh, the most uh, progressive school of corporate leadership as we would uh, as it should be touted nowadays, but it mm. is phenomenal especially when it's just put next to tom's speech right before which is is <laughs> something i you know i'm way more used to hearing which is like hey the numbers are up things are looking good and like everyone's just staring at him with a blank face like yeah okay cool yeah, yeah. very interesting uh, moment from that episode yeah but they're that. just uh, giving uh, our our man brian cox carte blanche and he's just he's just owning it just emmys emmys for everybody can't wait i love it and um i'll just have to go on the record we've already gotten some uh, some comments from loyal listeners um mm-hmm. telling me uh well essentially telling me that i'm an idiot because my year-end big bet of 2023 was that this season of succession was going to you know flop mm-hmm. um and i will go on the record saying i was wrong uh and i'm very happy i was wrong because this might end up being the best season yet I mean, all signs point to it being, and I think it's very big of you to have conceded after only two episodes. I actually think there's still, like, a, to be controversial, it could still take a, a real turn, you know, and, and get suddenly really bad. Like, Game of Thrones t- was really only really, really bad in the last couple of episodes. Right. Uh, so you never know, right? But I think it's it's like uh, an election defeat. You know, this is election night and you've called it early. You're you're handing the congratulations to our listeners who have... Uh, who've called you out so no it was a rare miss for you i think on this one uh you yeah. called it and i was with you a bit on that i i kind of shared your uh your skepticism but i think we've both been proven hugely wrong yeah which is fantastic to see and i think a lot of that is due to the fact that right after we made those bets or a little while after we made those bets uh they said it would be the last season uh and mm-hmm. so they're they're not holding back 100%. But like, again, if you I've been looking at every possible content I can find for it and interviews with Jesse Armstrong, where he's basically talking through the logic as to how it became the last season. And just everything about what he says is so damn smart about it. It's just like, he his whole method, his way of reaching conclusions about how it should be the last season, etc. It's so crazy smart. And I, I think it, in hindsight, it's like, how did we ever doubt this guy? You know, he's just too good he doesn't miss you know yeah but just like the the logic if you put it like into like for normal jobs for normal people it's like you going into work tomorrow and saying these are my last 365 days in the office no matter what happens 12 month notice period that would be actually pretty amazing just to uh, as an experiment you know yeah exactly i'm sure it happens it probably does happen as well at the top level like if you're in the ceo position and you say right you you agree with the board i'm going to do one more year and then finish up that's the kind of thing that probably does happen uh, probably less so at our level where it's, it's like uh, <laughs> hey just so you know i'm going to do one more year and then i'm out of here that doesn't, yeah. doesn't have the same uh, ring to it but yeah amazing 
but I guess you just you just hold back a lot less and you you really just go for it and have nothing to lose. And maybe that's what gets the creative juices flowing. With Genuinely, certain I think we may have actually just I mean, that, that's clearly how it'll work in this TV world. But I think we may have just invented a, a concept to be applied to the to the corporate world more broadly. Something to uh, something to think about. Yeah. So listeners, this is our last podcast, uh, like it or not. One more year. One more year. One and more year. Out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You'll have to bear with us for one more year. That's another 52 episodes. Speaking mm. of which, Neil, this is our first ever remote recording. True. Um, so listeners that haven't joined us before, this is something new we're trying. We're we're at a distance for, for a couple of weeks, Neil and I. Uh, and so we're using a virtual studio. Uh, we may sound a bit different than usual mm. for the other mm. listeners. Uh, but let's see. Uh, it's all part of the part of the learning. Absolutely. We've been very kind of boldly resisting the the temptation to do things virtually up until now. We've really valued the audio quality over everything else and like made the effort to, to be in person every single time up till now. But you know what? Life just life just gets in the way sometimes. And if this solution works, and I think it will, then it, it just opens the door to more episodes, which is ultimately what we want to do. So, uh, yep, uh, it may be not as stellar audio quality as ever, but I think it's worth it if it means getting more episodes. Absolutely. And today we will be delving into the second part of our pop culture country tier list. Um, listeners, you can go back if you haven't already to the episode from two weeks ago uh, on Sweden. Uh, today we're covering another very interesting country and we're going to start building up this lore, building up this scorecard and really turning this into, into something uh, recurring, something for the ages. Absolutely. But I think before we get into that, we do want to open, as always, with our mundane postulation. I'm, yes. uh, I'm going to be kicking us off with that. So without further ado, do you mind if I jump straight in? I don't mind at all. Let's hear it. So uh, this is a fun one. For me, uh, as someone who's been working a bit close to this industry uh, over the last decade or so, I'm interested to hear about your shopping habits, mm. your your grocery habits. And this is something we all... Uh, we all have a preference. We all have a way of doing. And actually, sometimes, shockingly, it can be very different from one another as to how we do it. So my question to you, sir, is this. When you're shopping, are you a big weekly shop guy? You go fill everything up one day a week and that's it? Or are you one of a growing number of people who apparently go every two or three days and they're just like, yeah, I'll, I'll buy two things now for two dinners now, two lunches now, and then, you know, maniacs in my view. But there you go. So mm. you, you hear you hear where I fall on this, but where do yeah, you fall? I hear where you fall on it, and I'm quite with you. Um, I'm all about the stocking up one big weekly thing, not necessarily the planning every meal, but we have in the past two years, Maria and I, we've taken it to the extreme where we get one huge delivery on the Monday, mm. Uh, mm. which gives us basically dinners for the rest of the week, which we still have to you know cook and everything, but we have all our ingredients. Uh, and a big reason for that is the fact that if we didn't do that, especially living in a city where, you know, shops are right around the corner, you end up in this vicious cycle, which you mentioned, which starts with, oh, I'll go twice a week, ends up being, I'll go every night to pick out mm -hmm. my dinner, which gets ultimately a lot more expensive. You waste a lot more. Um, and uh, you're doing everything everything last minute and actually not as healthily in the end. So I try exactly. to avoid at all costs uh, the, the last minute pickup of grocery supplies. If you're talking snacks or top-ups, that's one thing. But mm. for your actual meals, 
it's not the way to go. 100%. I'm with you. I think in general, people are pretty... We're all very stupid animals in the sense that we're all victims of impulse and impulse control. Or, or yeah, we, we, we suffer perhaps from our impulse control, meaning the more opportunities you give yourself to uh, be tempted, the more it'll happen, I believe. So in other exactly. words, the more the more you walk past the checkout or the more you walk past the chocolate aisle or whatever it is, you are just giving yourselves more opportunities to to indulge, unfortunately. Now... All of that said, I'm also a big skeptic of the gorillas slash, you know, these 10-minute uh, delivery startups that are yeah. out there now. And uh, I've never really done it. I've never gotten into it. But I do think that the optimal setup would be one weekly shop plus a 10-minute delivery of whatever you need when you need it. However, I just don't think anyone has successfully made that work as a business model. At least what I'm hearing, early signs point to it not being 100% uh, viable, let's say. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's maybe that's maybe where I want to get to eventually. But for now, I'm in the I'm in like fill it up once a week, and that's it. You know, don't yeah. go back. But definitely, as as business models, uh, food delivery in general, and maybe we can get somebody else on the podcast to talk about it that knows a lot more. But my understanding mm. of it is, it's not very viable or sustainable, even financially, uh, in terms of the cost for those companies per transaction are actually higher than what they're they're gaining from each of those transactions. So, mm-hmm. and this whole logic, especially now in the economy where we are, where growth can can offset any, uh, you know, lack of unit economics, that's not going to check out as much. So I think we're probably only going to see a few more of these uh, left standing in the next few years, exactly. actually, because uh, the demand is one thing, but they're not able to offset the fact that these transactions actually lose money. It's like if you would go to the restaurant uh, and be paid to eat there half the time that you're there. Mm. It, it, exactly. It's just like, unfortunately, easy to find users and very hard to make it profitable. Yeah. At least in our very basic assumptions here where it's like, no, it just doesn't hang together. It just doesn't like actually makes sense end to end but no, uh exactly maybe maybe someday drone technology you know automated deliveries who knows maybe it'll be viable but i think for now we're stuck with uh dragging our our sorry asses along to the to the grocery store once a week and yeah uh, and honestly i mean the in those 30 minutes that anyways because uh, it's never actually 10 minutes that no. you're waiting for whatever this delivery is to come you could have cooked up a mean much healthier and cheaper meal in your kitchen Exactly. And and it's not that difficult, people. Really, exactly. like I don't really, I don't really do this whole, uh, oh, I never learned to cook thing. Like, come on, really, mm. you're you're lazy. Agree. And I'm also keenly aware of us becoming the the realization of the film Wally. I don't know if you've seen Wally, the yes. Pixar classic. Like, uh, this is the way we're going. Every every invention, every innovation is leading us towards moving less, doing less, having to like try less, basically in every possible way which I, I just want to also avoid. And okay, it's only a 30 minute trip, let's say to the supermarket, but that's still steps that you otherwise aren't going to get if you yeah. order it, right? And I feel like these days steps are hard to come by. I know step counting has is, is kind of been debunked as well. It's not like a, a great indicator. We've talked about it before, but still, I think it's like anything that gets you up and out of the house is probably not the worst thing ever. So for all those reasons, I'm actually a little bit old school on this. I'm like, go get your stuff, go, go, go shopping, you know? I think it's great advice. Uh, I love that you found... Uh an additional silver lining from uh, from going to the supermarket. And yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the ones that are constantly uh, debunk- debunking uh, the step counting are the ones trying to justify their amount mm. of very little steps in a day. 
That's true. And they're saying, well, you know, I go to the gym once a week, so I'm all good. I mean, yeah, you kind of, there's other, there's other aspects in play there. But in any case, wow, a a nice little shopping population. As always, coming prepared with your, your controversial takes here, which actually we've been aligning on a lot more lately. So we uh, need to find, yeah, we need to find a more divisive one next time. Something we strongly disagree about. Exactly. No, but listeners, you can write us in with your mundane postulations, with your answers to our mundane postulations, finding us via email at lossinpostulation at gmail.com or via Twitter. That's at inpostulation. If you listen on Spotify, we're going to keep throwing out a bunch of, uh, of polls to, uh, to hear from you. Amazing stuff. Great. So, listeners, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, it's on to the land of the rising sun. Listeners, welcome back. And it's a very warm welcome to Japan. Neil, how do you feel about this? Absolutely pumped. Anyone who knows me will know I'm a absolute Japanophile. Love the country. Loved the two times I was there and have a lot to say about it. So apologies in advance if, I, uh, if I'm even more verbose than normal on this one. But I just, I'm passionate about Japan. That's good. That's good. As you should be. This is the second part of our pop culture country tier list. We covered Sweden on the last episode where we went by various categories, uh, scoring independently, me and Neil, and then working towards our aggregate scores. um, Sweden on a range of pop culture categories, the same categories which we're going to use on Japan today and for countless amounts of countries in the future. Um, Those categories were music, Film and TV, literature, cuisine, sport, and a special wildcard category. So that totals up. You can score from one to five. And as we go, we'll explain what all the points are for each category for a total of 30 points. Sweden scored a very commendable and respectable 19.5 on our first episode. And they actually scored a full five points on music. So they're really leading the way as the best music country uh, in the world at the moment. Absolutely. Also the worst at the moment. Exactly. But uh, that's just how it goes. Exactly. So this will be a dynamic list. It's kind of like, I don't know, Neil, if you've ever watched an alpine ski race where whoever comes down first gets to hold the podium and then they keep coming off of the podium as the other guys Mm -hmm. get a better time once they come down. Exactly. This is like uh, in Formula One when Nick Latifi sets the uh, fastest lap in qualifying because he's the first one out. Yeah, just like that. <laughs> exactly. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. So that's where Sweden is at the moment. But who's to say that Sweden uh, won't uh, won't keep punching near the top? Because again, a very respectable 19.5. And today we have Japan. So Neil, before we dive into those categories, I wanted to provide you and our listeners with a quick one minute summary to the tune of the Japanese national anthem. Amazing. You ready? Always. Okay, here we are. Japan is an island country in East Asia. It is situated in the Northwest Pacific Ocean and is bordered on the west by the Sea of Japan, extending from the Sea of Oxkosh in the north towards the East China Sea, Philippine Sea, and Taiwan in the south. Japan is a part of the Ring of Fire and spans an archipelago of 14,125 islands 
with the five main islands being Hokkaido, Honshu, the mainland, Shinkoku, Kyushu, and Okinawa. Tokyo is the nation's capital and largest city, followed by Yokohama, Osaka, Nagoya, Sapporo, Fukuoka, Kobe, and Kyoto. Japan is the 11th most populous country in the world, as well as one of the most densely populated and urbanized. About three-fourths of the country's terrain is mountainous, concentrating its population of almost 125 million and declining on narrow coastal plains. Japan is divided into 47 administrative prefectures and eight traditional regions. The greater Tokyo area is the most populous metropolitan area in the world, with more than 37.2 million residents. Welcome to the land of the rising sun. Welcome to Japan. What an intro. Love that. Yes, absolutely. So here we are. That is Japan in a nutshell. Uh, very much isolated as an island, has very much developed its own culture in so many ways. I remember when I went there for the first time in 2015, uh, just what a different experience. You're buzzing the whole time because so many things are new uh, and different. Having said that, though, they've contributed a ton to the global pop culture in terms of exporting uh, this unique culture that they've developed locally. Absolutely. And I think that's that that holds intuitively. Like we'll see how the scores play out, but I think you can say pretty readily we're in we're in for a big one here. Like across a lot of the categories we're going to be talking about, Japan has really punched well above its weight uh, on the global stage. Exactly. And Neil, where better to start than with Japanese cuisine as our first category? So strong. Coming out the gates very strong on the cuisine, I think. Yeah. I mean, where where to even start here? Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, I think most people, you know, they would go, they would start with the cliche, which is sushi, which already just that on its own in terms of the status from a pop culture perspective, being in the zeitgeist globally, bringing that cuisine uh, is is unbelievable. But then, you know, we have tempura, we have some of the best ways to do noodles in the world, arguably doing noodles even better than the Italians with udon, with ramen, whatever. Mm -hmm. We have some of the best beef in the world with Wagyu, with Kobe. It's really just that top line already. It's tough to beat. And I think on top of that, and something you love, Tokyo, one of the cities with the most Michelin stars in the world. That is true. And actually, uh, not even expensive Michelin stars. I mean, a lot of people will have seen Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which was uh, an Academy mm -hmm. Award winning documentary. That was a, a sushi restaurant with nine seats. Now, that was an expensive one that was located in a subway station in Tokyo. Still is, I believe. Uh, however, some other Michelin star restaurants are very affordable in Tokyo. There's actually one place I went to for lunch where it was like a $15 US kind of price. And it was uh, just a really simple specializing in uh in fish and and extremely nice restaurant but they don't have to be expensive to be amazing right so just uh, from a food perspective absolutely amazing my question to you though was in your time in japan did you actually eat a lot of sushi because i can tell you from my side i actually didn't and we no. almost didn't eat it the whole trip no i actually kind of had to go out of my way a couple times to have that proper you know sushi experience at the at the market um, in Sijuku, I think it's called, right, in uh, in Tokyo. Mm. But other than that, I was actually having uh, a lot more of, of everything else, whether that was shabu-shabu or, or noodles on the go, uh, okonomiyaki, whatever. And I was exactly. quite glad of that because I discovered a lot of new things. 
when you know my wife for example she orders sushi home once a week right like like clockwork so we have plenty of sushi of course it's not the same so when i came back after japan i didn't really want to have sushi at home because yeah. it was that much better but actually when you're around there you're not having sushi all the time it's a bit like when you go to to italy as a tourist you realize oh it's not just pasta and pizza yeah exactly but uh, from my own perspective like the westernization of sushi that we've done over here is maybe this is very controversial i think it's actually really good like mm -hmm. what, what we've done in europe i think is added things like fried chicken or like you yeah. know deep deep fried <laughs> shrimp but then just like mayonnaise and like you yeah. know spicy mayonnaise or stuff like that which you would never ever ever find in traditional sushi places but no. i do think that that is a something that we have at least it caters well i think to the western palate more so than the traditional sushi that you get right. in in japan loved the sushi that i had in japan but loved even more some of the other things that i had things like ramen uh yeah the curry rice that, i don't know if you tried that when you were there but curry rice oh, also yeah. amazing. yeah yeah Just, uh, chicken katsu yeah, yeah 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 with curry sauce they're big into that yeah but one of the one of the points i definitely wanted to mention though is it's not even just the restaurants that nail food because anyone who's been to japan will know of course 7-eleven is absolutely everywhere you cannot miss it in fact i don't think i think there's like more 7-elevens than people in certain places but like yeah. you you have an absolutely magical experience there because it's it's very different to how 7-eleven is anywhere else in the world particularly when it comes to their pre-packaged foods and this i had an absolutely amazing time with you can just walk in and pick up any sandwich there anything that looks you know like a normal sandwich but it tastes absolutely amazing it's like i don't know how they do it but one way or another the bread is perfect the fillings are amazing they'll heat it up for you it's just like it was honestly one of the highlights and if i was to go back to japan probably one of the first things i would do at the airport is run to a 7-eleven and just yeah. fill my bag with uh, with stuff it That's was amazing. amazing and what a lot of people might not know is that 7-eleven is actually japanese itself mm, mm, exactly and that's and, gone uh, global as well we don't have a category for convenience stores in this list, but if we did, it would be a, a pretty strong, uh, strong contender. That's absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. No, definitely. And while you're at the 7-Eleven in Japan, you can actually go to the 7-Eleven bank ATM and mm -hmm. withdraw your Japanese yen. Actually, it's one of the most recommended ways to get money when you're in Japan is to go to a 7-Eleven, exactly. uh, which again, just cements its position as an invaluable part of, uh, of your trip to Japan. But uh, amazing stuff. The only the only negative, because I had to really rack my brains to think, is there anything I don't like about Japanese food? Mm. And the only the only kind of disappointment for me in my in my brief times there has been bento boxes. And okay. I don't know if you've if you've tried those. Yeah, many times. Yeah. I think these get a lot of hype and also a lot of attention internationally as like, ooh, that's cool. You know, these yeah. these very nice prepackaged lunch boxes. And when you get a bullet train, say from Tokyo to Kyoto or Tokyo to Osaka or whatever. Yeah. It's kind of the done thing to grab a bento box on the station platform even and have that as your meal on the way. Right. Now, I don't know if I picked the wrong one or what it was, but like it, it sounds too good to be true and it basically was too good to be true. You know, you, <laughs> you open this box and you're like, yeah, this is cold, not very fresh food. Like I, I don't, I'm yeah. not enjoying this at all. And would have been better off just with a sandwich from 7-Eleven. So maybe, maybe I was burned by a bad bento box uh, manufacturer. However, that was one... One blip in an otherwise perfect cuisinary, cuisinary? culinary uh, experience okay. yeah. uh, so, in Japan. So bearish on the bento boxes, but I think in a way, that's a bit Japanese quality being the victim of its own success. 
Mm, and the attention yeah. to detail being the victim of its own success, right? Mm, I think so. It's just not a great format, I think, uh, like, uh, unfortunately. But, I mean, come on, if this is my biggest complaint, uh, <laughs> exactly. it was, it's, from, from my point of view, we're talking global impact, and come on, you just can't beat it. The Ramen, like, on its own, I've, I wanted to just land the point that I honestly think Ramen is a top, top-tier food in general like if i had to pick my favorite one thing to only eat forever potentially ramen would be up there well yeah well and the versatility how much you can do with it right you can have it Mm. dry you can have it wet you can have it combined with whatever you want so i think it's it's phenomenal look if we have to rate this all my cards on the table knowing that uh five in our scoring system and our lost impostulation scoring system is we cannot imagine a world without japan's contributions to this category mm-hmm. being cuisine it's an easy five for me that's a five for me it's a five it was already a five due to my own personal preferences because like no country in the world will will overtake japan in my eyes for food and how much i enjoyed their food and taking that aside then just the cultural impact like how 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 omnipresent sushi is in every part of the world now that that has the, the concept of takeaway food it's just like yeah it's omnipresent so and clear five on this one i think absolutely so it's a five on food japan at the moment the best country in our ranking list on food in the world it's certainly higher than sweden no offense to sweden no but, offense uh, to yes. sweden but uh sweden didn't make many points on that category uh if i recall they actually took home a two yeah. um so respectable but japan wins this one for now for now very good neil how do you feel about moving on to the next category sport let's do it yes so First thing uh, that comes to mind, and also while we were doing this research, uh, in terms of contributions and in terms of scale of those contributions and uniqueness of them, is certainly martial arts. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And none more so in my life than karate, karate, the ancient art, mm-hmm. uh, which actually I, I spent a, a few years trying to do as a, as a youngster and really enjoyed, actually. I think... Karate went on to inspire or to influence other martial arts from other countries, like Taekwondo, mm-hmm. which is from Korea, uh, right. both north, north and south, is heavily uh, inspired by karate. And then you'll also see it, some of the, the chops or the punches or the kicks that you do in karate, you'll see in other martial arts as well. But I think the key point is martial arts as a concept globally has been popularized in no small part due to Japan, I think, and due to karate, and then judo as a, as a secondary one to that. I think... All I wanted to land here as a particular comment is not to overlook martial arts as something you might do as a person, right? Because I think for Mm. me and for many people, it was a quite unique hobby that I took up in my teenage years that filled an otherwise unaddressed need towards like discipline and practice and skill, Mm. you know? Right. And particularly if you're not very coordinated with, uh, for example, making a ball go anywhere, which I'm not, uh, that rules out a lot of sports. But then uh, martial arts was still like an amazing one. So I suppose this is not so much a comment on Japan other than to say I think karate and, and other things like it are actually super important and a, a very vital part of sport for many people. So I do wanted to, I definitely wanted to just emphasize that I think it's its influence can't be ignored here on the, on the world stage. Absolutely. And I mean, they're major Olympic sports now. Um, just going back on your experience with karate, what belt did you reach? So in karate, I got as far as a yellow belt, which is uh, one above white. Oh, great. And 
Yeah. However, I uh, betrayed my Japanese countrymen and switched to Taekwondo when I was about 12. Ooh, the so Korean. Then, yeah. And I did the North Korean style of Taekwondo, ITF Taekwondo, which uh, takes you on a different belt path. You, so you go from white to yellow to green to blue to red to black. So okay. uh, on that one, I got to a green belt. But uh, okay, yeah. well. I shouldn't really talk about discipline while I simultaneously didn't have the discipline to even get a black belt in either. But there you go. <laughs> this is... Uh, it's a tough world out there. But in any case, uh, a great contribution, I think, to to sports in the form of martial arts. Judo, I've never tried. Have you uh, Have you ever? No, never tried. I actually, I think maybe one of my biggest sporting regrets, always having done a lot of sports my whole life, is to never have dabbled too much in martial arts, mm. uh, to have always been fascinated by them, you know, to the point where I would borrow my uncle's is old uh you know judo suits and the belts and uh, and mm-hmm. even put something in my head and watch the karate kid obsessively for 10 days on end but i never really got into them and it's always been a bit of an an itch i've had because i've seen you know friends and and, and family that have done these things and really how much they speak of it and sometimes the last part they speak of is actually the physical aspect the yeah. mental one and the learnings from that being the most important Absolutely. Also, uh, we do a lot of self-defense specifically in those martial arts, which mm-hmm. is, is different from martial arts in the sense that martial arts is, is the art and self-defense is a part of it. It's like if you ever end up in this in a real situation. Right. And the first thing they teach you in any martial art, at least from my experience, is your first number one goal is to run, run away, get run away. get as far away from the person as you can and mission accomplished. You never, ever really want to be using these techniques. And if you are, it's because it's a last resort and because... You know, you, you have exhausted all other possibilities, but they from day one, they're like, you're not here to learn how to fight. You don't want to fight in any circumstance, you know. So for a kid, for someone who's maybe a bit young, you know, who's a little bit, uh, you know, not 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 quite, let's say, fully mature. This is a great message to be hearing as well, you know, when they're at that age where they're, they're coming to karate or to taekwondo thinking, hey, I'm going to learn how to beat up my, my friends right, or whatever. Exactly. But very quickly, that's beaten out of them. And they're told, well, actually, no, this is a discipline that you're learning to improve mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah. And if it helps you in a dangerous situation, then fantastic. But that's that's not why you're here. Yeah. But amazing stuff. Beyond martial arts, though, unless we had anything more to, to No, I think that's on it there. on martial arts. I mean, good, good on to the Japanese for bringing us judo and karate and and influencing all the other martial arts right because even the the israeli krav maga takes so many things from these and that's way down the road exactly there's so much overlap between all of the different types Mm -hmm. across all of the predominantly i guess asian oriented uh, or 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 asian originating martial arts they're all very kind of interrelated but uh one we haven't mentioned so far and it's not really a martial art so much as a sport is sumo sumo yes. wrestling i suppose now i was never lucky enough to get to a sumo contest there's uh it's quite difficult to both get the timing right and also to get a ticket to a, a proper sumo tournament when you're in japan so i never had that chance but would love to have done so i don't yeah. know if you uh i, don't I know didn't if you get managed. the chance to do it but i've read a lot about it and there was actually a big economic study done uh, about match fixing mm. uh, and sumo is the thing they they always look at yeah. for that these weekend long sumo tournaments uh and and match fixing so yeah. uh, that was very interesting but i had an experience with sumo myself actually oh yes go on please well, please elaborate it's, i mean it's not as exciting as it would sound but we had uh, in a unit in gym class when i was in school i must have been maybe like 11 or 12 we were doing um 
we're wrestling and learning, you know, grappling and all these uh, these tactics, because, of course, then it becomes the high school sport wrestling, not mm-hmm. sumo. Uh, but one day we actually did sumo and really like trying to force each other out of this little circle. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. At full force. And it was so much fun. Uh, really? and, uh, and I really appreciated it. And then if you go and you watch some of these, uh, these sumo fights on, on YouTube and whatever, I can really, really encourage that because it's, it's quite fascinating actually how tactical it is because the brute force, when you have two guys that are in the exact same weight class, mm-hmm. uh, and have the exact same kind of horsepower, let's say, uh, is not what it boils down to, uh, in sumo. It's actually a lot more tactical and strategic than you think. Mm. And I'm I'm super interested in also the the life behind a sumo wrestler, mm. like the the training camps and and the kind of life that they lead in they they live in in kind of collectives. These sumo wrestlers yes. where they're just eating basically all day every day to maintain their size. It's really uh, it's fascinating. I'm 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 kind of shocked I haven't seen more of it coverage like on YouTube or whatever about like the life of a sumo wrestler. What, the point I was going to make though is we are here to talk a bit about global impact, right? Mm-hmm. And sumo sumo weirdly is one thing that, despite being enormously popular and also enormously well known to people globally, it's not like we can go watch a sumo bout anywhere in the world other than Japan, right? No, as exactly. far as I know, at least exactly. So. Yeah, I mean, that's with with sumo, with martial arts. Another thing, when you look at Japanese sports and you look at what their biggest spectator sport is, actually, nationally, it's baseball. And actually, listeners, before we get to baseball, what you'll notice is the quality of the sound and the audio has changed. Now, we experienced some technical difficulties on the remote recording, and now we're actually back in the studio uh, and Neil, here we are, back to baseball in Japan. Picking up where we left off. Seamless transition. I love it. Absolutely. Look at that. So I was saying baseball, not invented in Japan, brought to Japan, of course, uh, by the Americans. But it is actually the biggest spectator sport in Japan. Sold out stadiums uh, with actually atmospheres, with fans singing and all of this. Uh, and then they've gone on to actually win the World Baseball Classic on three occasions, making them the team that has won the most all time. So arguably, the biggest baseball powerhouse in the world is actually Japan. It is. It's, to me, always a shock. Like anytime I hear anyone talk about baseball and how popular it is, whether it's in the US or Japan or elsewhere, I'm just in a, a constant state of bewilderment as to how that's possible. Uh, some listeners will know I'm not I'm not hugely into uh, baseball, but yeah, it's uh, good for them. You know, glad they enjoy it so much. But geez, it's a little bit of a slow moving sport, a little bit too slow moving for me. Although I did hear recently that haven't they implemented some kind of a timer now in, in the US to yeah. speed it up a bit? On the, yeah. on the pitcher, apparently, kind of yeah. like the equivalent of a shot clock in basketball to mm. get them to to deliver more more quickly. Exactly. Um, let's see. But you you get into baseball. I have to say, when I right. lived in the US, in the beginning, any European that moves to the US is like, what the hell is this yeah. shit? It goes yeah. so slow. You're falling asleep at the games. Mm. And then you get into it because it's the games within the games. It's strategic. Yeah. A bit how you've gotten into watching paint dry on the Formula One track. Exactly. <laughs> Formula One fan as well. Let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, can't, I just my team yeah. sucks, right? Yeah, so. exactly. I don't have a team. That's the that's the secret to Formula One. That's the way to go yeah. with any sport, actually. And oh, I, what I could what I could probably predict is that if there was fantasy baseball 
I would probably get very into baseball, or at least I would get very into the stats because I know baseball is actually insanely stat driven, like even more so. Yeah, yeah, more so than in like say football, where there's a lot of form and a lot of like the eye test and yeah, you yeah. know uh, new manager bounce and all these like totally non data based uh, <laughs> exactly. phenomena. I think baseball is literally like no, he's just really good at hitting the ball, you know. Yeah. But that's neither here he nor there. He gets on base. He gets on base. He is a money ball, as the quote goes. Uh, no, it doesn't. But in any case, uh, that doesn't really tell us much about Japan. And I suppose getting back to Japan, it's great that they play such an important role in world baseball. I know that they export players, or yep. like it's kind of a feeder to to the US, and probably a huge percentage of US players Absolutely. are Japanese. That's, uh, that's great players too. That's significant, right? Yes. And when it comes to our scoring, let's keep in mind as well that like. It is important that we are looking at things like that, but we're also looking at global influence, right? And baseball still is not exactly, you know, FIFA World Cup levels of global global influence, right? No, but more than, for example, uh, American football, let's say, right? Because yeah, yeah. baseball has the Americas, the Caribbean, Asia. That is true. But Europe is a no-go. But that's Japan on baseball. We mentioned briefly your beloved Formula One, mm. and that leads me to the next point on Japanese sports, and that is the role of Japan in motorsports. Yeah. A very huge but very specific role, I suppose you could say. Absolutely. They yeah. are engine manufacturers, engineers, having teams, the Hondas, the Yamahas, the Suzukis, and not just in, in motorsports as in Formula One, for example, but they've basically owned MotoGP mm. for the last 30 years as well. Which was news to me. For someone who's so into Formula One, I actually know basically nothing about MotoGP, but... Basically, no, all the motorcycles are Japanese. So is that Suzuki, Yamaha? Am, mm -hmm. I, am I missing any others, or is that those are kind of the main big ones? And like, Honda. Oh, oh no. they, do, they do motorbikes. Yeah, oh, as well. Okay, as okay. well, exactly. Okay. The engines, at least. So yeah. it's basically, it's the three of them in MotoGP, and mm. then you have like the Ducati, the Italian, but it's really Japanese-dominated, 75% yeah. of, of the bikes. Absolutely huge. And then, of course, we know about Honda due to their in and out in and out dance with uh, Red Bull recently and who right. knows where that where that puts us but I had to when I was reflecting on this uh, in advance I was thinking also let's not forget Yuki Tsunoda Japanese mm -hmm. driver who just this year is starting to really come into form he's probably a household name in Japan I can imagine he's insanely popular there but also because of his unique weirdness I don't know if you've seen him great on, character yeah if you've seen him on Drive to Survive he's like quite an odd fish to say the least but with that comes a lot of like popularity and fandom and I think a lot of people are starting to get behind him more and more I'm I'm hearing chat of him replacing Checo Perez at, at Red Bull potentially isn't that right I think so like then again you can never trust these things right like no. it's all it's all chatter and smoke until it actually happens kind of you yeah. know then again he is performing well he's putting uh, his teammate to shame uh, Nick DeVries uh, so far right newcomer so, yeah who I think overperformed massively in Monza and won his seat on that basis and now year to date has been yeah right not, not so right. right but in any case I think Yuki stands to to have his star continue to to uh, shine and to grow, yeah, and represent Japan on the world stage from a from a sporting perspective. So motorsport, absolutely, I believe it. It's yeah. uh, that's and it's very Japanese in a sense of like we say the the precision mechanics, the the engineering exactly. aspects that you know post war boom of manufacturing where yeah. they were the biggest manufacturer in the world of anything. Uh, technological for such a long time you you still see their their weight and things like this 100 percent. i think it's it's a point i've often made which is like it's such a stereotype 
to think of Japan as a very orderly, precise place. And to, for that to carry over to engineering is almost too obvious to be true. But right. in this case, it really is true. Like they, they are just that good. They are world leaders when it Absolutely. comes to precision engineering. And yeah, we'll probably continue to be for quite a long time, despite maybe being a bit behind the curve these days when it comes to technology more broadly. Absolutely. Japan was more of a titan, I think, in the 90s when it came to, when it came to like electronics and technology. That was the peak, I would say. Yeah, even. yeah. yeah. It's like where they were just streets ahead, right? Right. But still to this day, I think engineering, where it comes to motorsports, when it comes to, yeah, their contribution to sport in general, I think where they'll continue to play a huge role is probably on the engineering side. Yeah. And motorsports in particular. It's a big part of it. So... If we take all of this together, we discussed martial arts, mm. we discussed sumo wrestling and the, the impact that could also have had on, on the WWE, former WWF, mm. taking a sport like baseball and really turning it into a national sport, even though there was no reason for it to be, and the role of motorsports. What score are you giving the Japanese on sports? Yeah, it's actually a tricky one. I think like... Had you asked me at the very start, having not had any discussion, I would have been a bit low, let's mm. say. But now that we've kind of dug into it a bit, I have to, I'm, I'm boosting a little bit my score, right? Mm. And I think mainly in recognition of martial arts, which you just can't be understated. Japan has that such an important role with karate in particular, which has gone yeah. on to influence so many others. Cross-cultural impact. Exactly. And the fact that I could ask pretty much anyone in the world, do you know what sumo wrestling is? And they'll say, yes, I do, basically. Yes. So that that's a hell of an export, right? There's not many countries who have a sport that's only played in their country and yet everybody knows it right right so that's quite huge so for that reason i'm actually leaning quite high on this we don't we don't do half grades i believe we always go in whole numbers exactly right exactly so i i'm between a three and a four and i'm gonna actually land on a four you're gonna land on a four which is highly influential on a global scale yes i'm gonna agree with you i'm gonna match that it's a four for me as well um and i think very much driven by the martial arts yeah, uh, as yeah. we said i mean that's just uh the impact that has had but also on so many other sports right is uh is immense uh and the lifestyle and and everything about it so yeah we scored sweden a three on sport uh and they were already solid right exactly we so said, that that scans because yeah. we couldn't i don't think we could put them both on a three that would be a clear exact mismatch right exactly so i think we're, this is this feels fair at least so i think that's fair and and well done japan I think there is nowhere else to go next but music. Yes. Music, yes. And not the most clear-cut mm. uh, music culture when we talk about global influence here, but there is an obvious place to start, and that's karaoke culture. Absolutely. What a place to start as well. Karaoke, I think, I have to say, just in the last two months, and I think Succession might even be partly responsible, I have felt... <laughs> the last two weeks. Yeah, yeah. I have felt this groundswell of interest in karaoke. It keeps coming up in conversations outside, mm. like in socially. It, people keep dropping it in. More and more, when I'm out on a night out, people are like, karaoke maybe? You know, It's making a bit of a post-COVID comeback yeah. type of thing here. And I think there's more in the tank for karaoke because... The type that we do here in Scandinavia or in a lot of Europe actually is a karaoke bar, which is mm -hmm. when you get up on stage and sing in front of the whole bar. But the other type, the Japanese type of karaoke, the one that's actually how it more so originated and became popular in Japan is when you have a private room, when it's you and your buddies or, or a small right. group and you just take turns singing and you can order food to the room. This is still a massive, massive industry in Japan and quite an experience when you're there. To, Big to, deal. Yeah, but a great fun to do it because it's just so bizarre. You go through the whole process and you get like a hotel room style room you scan your way in and then you're you're doing karaoke it's it's amazing but i suppose to to come to the impact of karaoke it can't be understated this was a japanese invention popularized and globally popular now because of japan mm -hmm. it's a lot of fun i love it 
for what it's worth that that will impact my score a little bit uh so for that reason i'm i'm hugely uh positive on the on the karaoke yeah i think where would we be without karaoke no without at least having one story to tell about a time that you did karaoke or the last time you did it right embarrassing or not and it's actually a japanese word uh, is yeah, that right? I believe so. So like many things, uh, like many Japanese words that have traveled, it's like a combination of two Japanese words that can get that then get kind of squashed together to make them pronounceable. So yeah. it was like an empty orchestra. And don't ask me to correctly pronounce the Japanese, but it was something like kara, meaning empty, mm-hmm. and orchestru or something like that. It makes sense. At least I hope I haven't butchered that too badly. <laughs> but so kara, orchestru, they put it together, karaoke, and there you go. Uh, and that's that's very often the naming convention. I, I, from what I found from things that get exported from Japan, it's like that's how, like Pokemon, pocket yeah. uh, monsters. You know, they they uh, they do that quite a lot. So that's that's how it came to be. But what a great word, and what a what a what a massive global success it's turned out to what be. What a contribution! Amazing. Thank you, Japan. And we can also start thanking them very much in line with how we did for motorsports mm-hmm. with instrument manufacturing. Absolutely. And as a guitarist and as a bassist myself, I am I probably under index on Japanese instruments actually. Mm. I took the lazy route. When you start playing electric guitars and, and basses, you when you Google it, you'll be told Fender is the best, right? Yeah. American made, da da da. Yeah. And if you can get yourself an American made uh, precision bass like I have, that's like a big deal, and that's a, a holy grail guitar worth pursuing. Mm-hmm. So I'm I under index a lot on things like Ibanez, uh, Yamaha guitars, like all these uh, extremely well made instruments by all accounts, but they they tend a bit more towards heavy metal actually. At least the Ibanez uh, okay. ones do. Yeah. And then what Japan, I think, is particularly great for is pianos. And I'm just not... Right. I'm not and that's just, very much where the Yamaha and plays. The, yeah, the, the Rolands right? yeah. yeah, of this world. So like that's that's an area I'm just less less uh, au fait in. But still, I understand they're basically the global leader on, on piano manufacture, or at least you know one of the best. Absolutely. So just like the engineering, again, we're talking precision engineering, manufacturing things with a level of precision that just can't be copied elsewhere that for some reason we just haven't been able to crack to the same level no exactly phenomenal stuff yes exactly and when we look at japanese music and again listeners we're talking about the global significance and impact relative to pop culture of their contributions to this category Mm. there's not much more going on there it's shocking in a way because if you just take a step back yourself now, dear listener, join me in this exercise, if you will. Try and name one uh, Japanese artist, like just one. And it, it, that's, it, mm. I'm just, I think that's a shock, right? Because we all, we all know what Japanese music sounds like. We've all heard the Pokemon theme. We've heard, Absolutely. you know, we know the the specific vibes of a, of Japanese music, but it's extremely hard to say artist X really broke out and, and broke into the global scene, you know? And I can, it's much easier to do that with other countries, like, say, South Korea, even. Like, oh, wow. Where you can pick Psy, you can miles. pick BTS. Yeah, you know, like, the, many names just come to you, you know? Yeah. So the only, the only worry I have here is that we're glossing over a very active industry because in Japan, the place is alive with music. Like, you can't miss music when you walk around. So It's apparently the second biggest music market in the world. Exactly. But you, there's no surprise because I think the moment you step off the plane, you walk through the airport, it's ding, dong ding. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, there's just like melodies playing Almost, everywhere. Yeah. When you walk into a shop, it has its own melody or theme song, yeah. you know, all these things. But I think it's very much a domestic music market that yeah. creates for itself. It gets consumed within Japan and, and you know, that's very much it. Right. And we're here to talk about global influence. So unfortunately, beyond karaoke and beyond instrument manufacturing, from my side, actually, I really start to hit the the bottom of the barrel quite quickly on, on Japanese music. I think so. So scoring them. 
my thinking here, if I look at a a two is significant in terms of uniqueness or success. Mm. So I, I could give them the unique card. Uh, thanks to the karaoke and and the instrument manufacturing, maybe on the success side, but mm. I can justify more than a two here yeah. from my side. I think there's always a risk when we do this work, this this brave work that we do, that we will feel pressure to be nice to countries. Yeah, and that's that's a recipe for disaster because then we're going to give everything threes and fours. Right? Exactly. So I'm I'm and this um, is a competition. Exactly. Like no, we're not here to have fun. This is a serious business. Well, we are. We're absolutely here to have fun. But anyway, this is a serious business, which is ranking countries on their pop culture contributions. So for that reason, because to to maintain to preserve the specialness and the the uh, what's the word the prestige of this exercise, I'm going to have to give it a two as well. We're matching twos. Yeah. So we are currently with Japan out of three categories, out of a total, a possible total of 15 points, we are at 11. So Which is decent. Quite good. It's a strong start. Strong yeah. start out of three categories. It's, it's what we would call a good run rate, I would say, so far. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. A good average so far. Mm. And let's see where that goes now when we start discussing film and TV, which is very much, uh, you know, a mixed bag, where we'll definitely start with something that's very unique to Japan, and that's anime as a genre. Absolutely. Now, I don't think either of us can really strongly claim to be anime experts. I mean, I don't want to speak for you here, but I'm pretty sure you're not an anime uh, expert. (laughs) You know that if you're not, I'm definitely not. Yeah, exactly. So unfortunately for the big anime fans listening, we're not going to be getting into detail on things like Dragon Ball, Naruto, Sailor Moon. I don't think I've actually seen even an episode of those things. At least Dragon Ball, you must have. I might have. And that was somewhat popular growing up, but I just kind of dodged it somehow. You know, like it just never really clicked with me. Now, since then, I have gotten into some of the more adult um, iterations, things like One Punch Man, which is an anime that's on Netflix. That's actually really fun Mm -hmm. uh, if you can get into it and get past the, the weirdness of it. But it's it's no it's definitely fair to say that anime has had a massive influence on the, on us globally, right? It's uh, it is massively popular. It's probably the most popular form of animation outside of like Disney classics that you can find, right? right? Um, and th- for that reason, you can give Japan quite a lot of kudos for for having that Im- impact, let's say, on the on the global scale. And I suppose Pokemon kind of falls into anime a bit, like it's. In some ways, it's it's very westernized, or it's like designed for a global market rather than mm-hmm. Japan. So it doesn't have some of the weirdness of, of anime more broadly, I think. But still, uh, a phenomenal influence from Japan on this one, despite neither of us really being, you know, experts on the on the topic. Yeah, yeah. So I think anime, significant, I think played a, a significant role also in many Western children's childhoods. So I think that the global impact, you know, is definitely there from that. Mm. Another one that, Neil, I'd like you to, to tell us a bit about, very much uh, in the light of how we discussed, for example, in the last ex- episode, Ingmar Bergman for Sweden. Tell me a little bit about Akira Kurosawa. Gladly, sir. Now, I was the fortunate recipient of a film studies course when I was 16, and uh, nothing really since then. But that film studies course was uh, was instrumental because it introduced me to the work of Akira Kurosawa. So I'm not a film studies or a Japanese film expert, but I'm probably something of a, of a Kurosawa fanboy, nonetheless, right? Kurosawa 
is often referred to as one of the greatest directors of all time, but also is referenced by other phenomenal directors as one of their biggest influences, even mm. if he's not quite as well known. And we'll get to who uh, has given him a shout out in a second. But if I was to give listeners some direction as to how, to, how do I get into this Kurosawa guy and, and what's he all about, I have to recommend, first and foremost, Throne of Blood, which is a Macbeth adaptation. So he took the Shakespeare script of, of Macbeth, but adapted it to make it a be about samurais in uh in samurai, like feudal feudal Japan, in in that context, right? It's a phenomenal uh, adaptation. It's a really cool action movie, actually. It has uh, Macbeth's death scene. He gets shot by, I think it's like two hundred arrows, and they did that. Uh, they they pre wired a load of arrows on wires and did the scene, so the actor got shot by all these arrows as he as he's being killed, you know. And I, I definitely recommend, if nothing else, looking that up on YouTube. It's an amazing scene. Uh, and that's from 1950. So well before, you know, modern technology had advanced to where action scenes were easier to do than they are than they were back then. Uh, so Throne of Blood, amazing. Also Rashomon, which uh, is, is a film that has had a massive impact, another of Kurosawa's. And the impact it has had, it's because of this, this trope of an unreliable narrator. Mm. So it's interesting because Rashomon is a film that basically happens three times as you watch it and it's being told each time by from the perspective of one of the characters and it's just a, a very simple incident that gets retold three different ways but what's cool about it is the differences are sometimes very very subtle and sometimes massive you know and right. it's, it's a reflection the film is like a reflection on how we all have let's say incentives to portray the past in different ways and how mm-hmm. nobody is truly a, an objective observer right. of, of anything right? biases and everything amazing as, as well and it went on to impact this entire the, the entire film industry i think because that concept of an unreliable narrator for its time was actually extremely unexpected it was something mm-hmm. that hadn't really been done before so audiences were sitting there watching somebody lying to you while telling a story you know like which mm-hmm. which was just on uh, just couldn't be fathomed you know so massive creativity from kurosawa on that front and it's been replicated since probably most notably in The Usual Suspects, where we have, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Kevin Spacey's character basically lying to us as an audience, but then we're okay with it. We get tricked by it, and it's it's, right. it's entertaining. So amazing. And then, actually, fun fact, it was tried again in 2008 in the great cinematic film Vantage Point with Dennis Quaid and Forrest Whitaker. You must have missed that one. Abs- is, that a, is that a Rashomon like, adaptation, or is it just like a... No, they unreliable... kind of just took the concept and yeah. applied it of like keep changing the narrator to, to ah. get the different vantage points of what happens when ah. this presidential uh, candidate, I think, got okay. got shot or whatever. And uh, Actually, it sounds pretty yeah. good, and it did pass me by. Yeah. yeah, I never saw it. Well, it's not a masterpiece by any means, but it just shows that kind of keeps going, this yeah. legacy. Phenomenal. But then uh, the only other uh, very easier to digest, let's say, intro to Kurosawa I could recommend is Seven Samurai, which is uh, just a a, classic, a really classic um, samurai film, which was very Western-y, Western-inspired and Mm -hmm. inspiring. So those three films, I think the listener could could not go wrong with and is a great introduction to his genius, of uh, to to Kurosawa's genius. But it's not just me saying that because Ingmar Bergman, who we spoke about in the Sweden episode, was a huge fan of Kurosawa and called him uh, or called his own film, The Virgin Spring, a touristic, lousy imitation of Kurosawa. And he said that basically at that time, his admiration for Japanese cinema was at its height. He was almost a samurai himself. So big words from Ingmar Bergman, wow. uh, the Japanophile, fellow Japanophile. Federico Fellini, big pal of yours, was also, yeah, uh, also a huge fan. The greatest living example of all that an author, an author of the cinema, I should say, should be. That was a Fellini quote there. And also our, our good buddy uh, from the Fablemans, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> 
uh, he, he, he has he does give a big shout out to Kurosawa uh, and has mentioned it as being one of his like formative uh, influences. So quite a massive name in world cinema. So you can hear I'm I'm kind of pitching this quite high, right? Uh, I'm talking in the realm of what we might expect a five to be mm-hmm. in this in this category, and we're not even done yet because we haven't even talked about. Studio Ghibli. Studio Ghibli and no. Hayao Miyazaki, yes. most famous for Spirited Away, which actually won an Oscar, right? It sure did. One of the first non-American animations, I think, to uh, to smash it. Certainly one of the, the first Japanese movies to, to do sure. so. Yeah. Have you, you saw Spirited Away, I think? Spirited right? Away, yes. And that's about where my knowledge ends on this. I know you've mm. recommended many to me, including Porco Rosso. Yeah, I love that. Love uh, that. So, uh, but there, most of these are on Netflix, actually. I was scanning it the other evening. Only recently, yeah. So up until, I would say, about three years ago, these Ghibli movies were impossible to get. You would literally... You, they, weren't, they couldn't be streamed anywhere, so you would have to either do something... Uh, not quite lawful, or you would have to buy a DVD somewhere, like online, and get it shipped to you. There was right. no other way to watch them. And this, like a bit the Beatles until uh, 2009, the, the studio, that was that was intentional from the studio. They were like, we don't want our stuff to be everywhere. We want mm. it to be special and, and hard, to, hard to find, yeah. And then eventually money talks and they cracked and they made a deal with Netflix. So the, the listener now is in the, the best time ever to see these movies, which previously were not impossible, but just more difficult to come by. So big shout outs to, of course, Spirited Away. And I'd say many of our listeners have seen Spirited Away. Go back and watch it again because it's uh, it gets better with each uh, I will. each viewing. Princess Mononoke, amazing action movie, quite epic in scale. Howl's Moving Castle, a little bit quirky. It's like a semi-comedy, quite bizarre. Even as Ghibli films go, it's pretty out there, but uh, also really, really cool. Porco Rosso, amazing movie about a fighter pilot who happens to be a pig in a world that's otherwise just full of uh, normal people. So really uh, creative premise, let's say, for an interesting movie. And My Neighbor Totoro, especially if you have kids, I think is probably a great one to to start with. It's it's kind of, that one in particular is pitched really towards children, okay, but has something for everyone, I think. And if nothing else, it's just massively memorable. And it's not just me on the uh, on the Studio Ghibli train. I think uh, pretty much globally, you'll find fans of Miyazaki's work. And uh, if you're ever in Tokyo, the museum is well worth visiting. The mm. Ghibli Museum, quite hard to get tickets. But if you do, you'll have a great time like I did. Um, and just enjoy the movies. They're, they're yeah. phenomenal. So all of this to say, basically, I'm ma- massive on film and TV for Japan. To me, this is like a six if I could give a six. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah We're really. going that high. Look at I, this. I have more in the tank as well because I could even say, yeah, the Pokemon series with the influence it's had, I could talk about Takeshi's Castle and how that spawned an entire global genre of uh, of TV shows, right? Mm. We didn't talk about Godzilla, one of the biggest, most famous monsters ever created. True. So True. all of that to say, I think this is the easiest five I could give. Wow. So a solid five. So for Japan. a five yeah. where we cannot imagine a world without Japan's contributions to film and TV. Do you stand by that statement? 100%. Unbelievable. Wow, 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 wow. You've put me in an interesting position because I haven't delved as much into it as you in terms of the the Kurosawa back catalog other than than Seven Samurai and then Ghibli other than Spirited Away. Uh, But it is difficult to argue against the impact even just of the anime, for example. Mm -hmm. Um... I'm going to go with a four, a very solid four, which is highly influential on a global yeah. scale. Ugh. But can I say, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I look at a five and I look at how many countries we're going to do in this, yeah, right? We can't be giving them away. Yeah. We can't be giving the fives away. And you have your reasons for it. And I mm-hmm. think your logic flows, but you're pushing it up there to be one of the, let's say, top five to top 10 most important cinematic 
countries mm-hmm. in the world. I know. I, I With great power comes great responsibility. I stand by it. And I would say easy top 10 and possibly even easy top five for me. Unreal, Japan. So yeah. with your five and my four, that gives a 4.5 on that category. And that is very strong for Japan because now with two categories left, uh, they could turn out to take a big lead potentially, potentially. against the Swedes. But it can all change the last hurdle as exactly. well. You never know. And here's a big hurdle. And that is a literature. Japanese literature, your favorite of all time, Neil. Yeah, this is one where we, we, you can imagine, listener, we do a little bit of pre-alignment, and this is one where I have to really say, you're going to need to help me out on this one. I'm uh, I'm not terrible on literature in, in general, let's say. I'm, it's one of my weaker pop culture areas, let's say. But Japanese literature, I'm pathetic, essentially. So I'm going to really need a hand here uh, through this section, and unfortunately, I can already basically flag that my score will be somewhat uh low it's a tough one i have to say because and i think it's very much in line with the way we discuss music where that domestic market and consumption for it is huge Mm -hmm. but that doesn't really help us uh, as much here so there's a few avenues to take this from one that's that's very dear to my heart is haruki murakami Mm -hmm. who sells million he's a novelist first and foremost and he's very much into this magical surrealism in a way has even created his own subgenre within that Mm. selling millions of copies globally translated into you know over 50 languages whatever and he's been going at it for about 30 years and he's considered up there when you talk about uh you know magical realism sorry Mm. excuse i said magical surrealism early but Mm -hmm. Then again. A subgenre of exactly. magical realism. Yeah. Um, he's up there with the Salman Rushdie's of mm, the world, mm. right? So, really, one of the best that is craft in terms of uh, in terms of writing novels comes from Japan. So that's one route to take it from. But that's that's one mm. that's one person yeah. from a country of you know 125 million people, right? Exactly. Um, the the route where they've had a lot more influence and which is a lot more significant is manga mm. and here we are again a little bit like how we spoke about uh, anime and how neither of us are particular experts right. i think that's certainly even more so the case here neither of us i don't think has sat down and read a, a manga at any point some graphic novels here or there but yeah exactly that's where it ends right I've, i'm the, big on the pure the, play yeah exactly the pure play i've never been i've gotten through things like watchmen sin city a few of those mm-hmm. Uh, I've never never had the pleasure or the privilege of getting through a an actual manga. Maybe I should actually, just out of curiosity, maybe it's worth so. looking for a good one. But in any case, I can definitely appreciate the popularity. I know that in pretty much any major city, you'll find a shop that's selling, like a, almost a specialist shop you'll find in many major cities actually, yeah. in, in Europe and elsewhere, which are selling manga as like a, as their main thing. Yeah. And it's certainly not, it's not a, no exception here in, in Denmark. But for some reason, for one reason or another, it just hasn't uh, hasn't got its hooks into me. But wow, it's popular, especially in Japan. You, you can't miss it. Like, it's absolutely everywhere. I remember being on the subway in Tokyo during, like, a rush hour time. And we're talking middle-aged men in their suit uniform, let's say, from mm. work, from whatever it was, from Sony, from the parliament. Yeah. All flipping through their own little manga while they're mm. while they're on the subway. And you look at it, like, from our, let's say, maybe more westernized, stigmatized perspective of, like... Mm. Are these adults reading comic books? And the yeah. answer is kind of no. It's actually a lot more nuanced than that. This That's is actually, legitimate yeah. literature, quote unquote, for them. It's legitimate entertainment. And it's a right. bigger point, actually, that I maybe let's bring it as a potential topic in the future. Because I've noticed as well, what's childish and what isn't varies massively 
from country to country. And I even know of countries in Europe or in more, more accurately Eastern Europe where having hobbies, having say a musical instrument is seen as like childish, you know, because it's like, well, why aren't you working? Why right. aren't you, you know? So it's, you're wasting your time. You're not yeah. getting paid for it. Why are you doing? Exactly. So who are we to look at manga and say, what are you doing wasting your time on, right. a, you know, on a drawing book? when probably you could equally look at the things we do, the hobbies we have, going for runs or whatever, like actual things that, that we take yeah. seriously and people are like, why aren't you out making money? Why aren't you working? Right. Like, why aren't you improving your, your mind or whatever? You know, right. like, there's probably uh, many ways to look at it. But in any case, back on Japan, sorry to take a soft piece once again, but back on Japan, massive influence from manga. So from a literature perspective, I can definitely acknowledge that along with Murakami, I have to give, you know, props to, I haven't read any of, of, of that stuff, but for that reason, let's say that that's certainly in a plus. That's uh, a point mm. in the plus column. The only other literature point I was going to drop in was just around haikus, haiku poetry, actually. Oh, of course, that classic second grade uh, assignment exactly. that we all had. Yeah. That mind blower when you're, you're <laughs> taught about syllables. And actually useful, if nothing else, very useful to teach kids the concept of syllables, right? That, you know, 575 five is, uh, it's a winner. It's a great structure. I always uh, struggled with syllables. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I suppose it's... Uh, it is a tricky one to get into. As a, as a non-native speaker, I think it's probably very tricky, right? right? Because you feel like there's a degree of subjectivity to it. And yeah. sometimes there is. I was confusing it because in my various languages, like mm. the, the s- syllabic emphasis changes from one to the other, yeah. right? So it's something I just discounted very much from yeah. a young age. Exactly, exactly. And just played it by ear kind of, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. But it's I think even for a native speaker, haikus and working with syllables in that way is actually pretty tricky, like nonetheless. Mm-hmm. So maybe Japanese lends itself more easily to it, but in any case, could be an interesting export and one that has successfully conquered the globe, it seems. Like I mentioned with sumo, I think you'd be hard pushed to find somebody, you know, in in, in the Western world who doesn't know what a haiku is. So from that point as well, actually, that, that does help me bump up the score maybe a little bit more than uh, than otherwise. But as you can hear, we're really uh, clutching at straws here for no. final additions. And we got to be honest, right? So where are you scoring this? It's really tough. Like, okay, it's not a one. Let's, let's, let's be clear. One right? would be maybe a bit too harsh. A one I'm reserving for just complete absence of input, right? Where mm-hmm. I'm just like, I, I have nothing. But I also don't know if this is quite a three, and that that feels mm. feels harsh. I know, but look, as we said, we need to we need to preserve the prestige of this competition, right? Exactly. Make it hard as well as uh, like we're, we're firm, we're fair, but we're we're firm. You know, exactly. we we hold these countries to a high standard. So for that reason, I'm actually going to lock in my two. You're going to lock in your two. Mm-hmm. I'm going to match that two as well. Um, two being significant in terms of uniqueness or success, and I think we can we can say that. But just uh, apart from the manga, the scale of of the success globally just just isn't there uh, as much on this category. I could have even leaned toward a one, but I'm gonna Ooh, go two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as much as I love Murakami and uh, as much as I appreciate manga, and of course we all had the two three kids in our classes in high school who were very passionate about mm-hmm. manga, and we're mm-hmm. just looking on like, what's that, you know? Mm-hmm. But the global impact is there to an extent, and that's why I'll go with a two instead of a one. That feels fair. And we're very aligned today, I feel. We've basically, we've been yeah. giving kind of similar scores across Easy the board, listening. which is not always the case. I mean, often we have very different perceptions, but in this case, it seems like we're quite uh, yeah. quite aligned. Japan aligning us all, and we will end this section with the wild card nail. Mm. And for the listener who maybe missed the Sweden episode, the idea here is we reserve a final section to capture something that isn't quite captured by the other categories. So you, you've heard us talk about some pretty big things, you know, sports, cuisine, literature, film and TV, music. But there's one thing we haven't mentioned yet, at least not in detail. 
And I'm talking, of course, about video games. Well, who, who does it better, actually? Yeah, genuinely, like, forget about it. And who, do, who does it better today? Nobody. Who did it better since it was created? Nobody. Like, Japan is far and away the world leader for games and probably will be for the foreseeable future. You could, you could argue, you know, there was a, a period there about 10 or 15 years ago before the Wii, say before the Switch came out and when the Wii was just taking off where you would start to doubt, mm, maybe... Are they going down the wrong yeah, path? Or right? maybe America's going to eat their lunch. Like maybe the Xbox is, is going to be the new one. Like the mm. Xbox 360 was actually more popular than the PS3 for a right. while. So there was a time when you, you might think maybe not, but then out come Nintendo with the most popular best-selling console of all time in the Wii, and then the Switch, which has almost matched it, I think, or gone even further. And on those consoles, they have games like Mario Kart, they have Legend of Zelda, which are just like second to none. Franchises. World beaters, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And let's not forget Pokemon, which is part of the Nintendo universe as well. Those games continue to sell in their millions. So it, it almost goes without saying, it's almost a moot point to say it, but God, Japan is so incredible good for gaming and i owe i would love to know how many hours of my life actually i owe to japan for gaming purposes n64 not an n64 guy so i actually have never owned a nintendo other than a, a ds which is like when they're right. held touch screen right i was on the psp in those days which yeah. by the way sony also japanese exactly so yeah. you, if you can't move for japanese consoles right yeah. i think we've all Pretty much anyone has, has at least touched a, a PlayStation controller right. or, or a Wii remote at one stage. Uh, but then in, in the games in question as well, there's just some absolute bangers in here. So over the years, we've had the Super Mario games, which I've just put countless hours into. But we've also had Elden Ring. I don't know if you've heard of that one. No. It came out last year. So that's also... It's probably why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's uh, from software. And that was the easy game of the year last year. That's a Japanese okay. one. Yeah. There's Metal Gear Solid. That series absolutely incredible you have final fantasy a great series of role-playing games you have zelda which uh, and, and also the fighting games tekken and street fighter are very japanese creations right uh, the concept of gaming arcades as well still alive and well in japan declining a little bit there you'll see in akihabara in tokyo they're starting to close down now some of the bigger uh, arcades right. particularly the sega arcades they're kind of divesting from that area but still you can't move in japan for arcades like you'll find one on if you walk around Tokyo, you'll find one within five minutes, probably. They're it's everywhere. funny because we don't have as many out west anymore as as we used to. At least when yeah. when we were kids, it was a classic like birthday party. Yeah, point, like Chuck E. Right? Cheese or something like that. Right. right? Oh, Chuck E. Cheese, you know it. <laughs> yeah, How yeah. do you know Chuck E. Cheese? Pop, pop culture. Like there I've you never go. I've never set foot in one, but I've seen it don't. enough. Yeah, no, I won't. I won't. But I've uh, <laughs> it's, it's a bit it's stranger a sheer, now. That you're... Yeah, a poor imitation of, yeah. of, a, of a real arcade, let's say. But uh, just incredible. And then we we started talking here about the N64 and the PlayStation, but it actually predates those as well, right? We mm. had the NES and the SNES, those early gaming systems straight out of Japan as well. So I think there's many things that Japan isn't strong on, and, you know, we talked a bit about them, but unquestionably, unmistakably, gaming, they are the, the GOAT, I think, for the world. Yeah. Like, very hard to argue with that one. Again, manufacturing, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. but then again, game design, like also having a mind yeah. for what will be fun, like what will be challenging, True. what will be interesting, and if I can if I can take one minute just to philosophize a bit about it, that game I mentioned, Elden Ring, right? Yeah, is actually quite bold because it's insanely difficult. Okay, even for a hardcore gamer, it's incredibly difficult, and that's that's the this company from software, that's their style. And that's very unique, actually, and has been for like 15 years that that's how they do things. And every time they release a game, a big percentage of gamers and journalists say, oh, you can't change the difficulty. It's so difficult. Uh -huh. 
what's up with that? Why isn't there an easy mode? And this company absolutely stick to their guns and they said, it's not fun. It's not fun to have an easy mode. And just trust us, practice the game. It's fair. It's hard, but it's fair. And you will have fun if you play this game. Unbelievable. So it's just like, they, they just have this philosophy towards fun, which is, is what makes them so successful because that game was the best-selling game of last year. Mm-hmm. So all of that to say, you hear where I'm at with this. I'm a big five on gaming. So uh, Japan gaming wildcard, easy five for me. I think it's got to be. Like even someone like me that mm. didn't take gaming into adulthood, it played such an outsized role still in, in my childhood for yeah. my generation. I mean, think of just even the evolution of those consoles from the N64 to the GameCube. Don't forget uh, the GameCube. I totally forgot. Yeah, right? Yeah. PS2, PS3, and so forth. And the franchises that come out of it, which are from Japan, like even think Super Mario. Yeah. I mean, even I dressed up as Mario for Halloween. It's a great like, costume. It's I great mean, costume. it's uh, it's a five. It's an absolute it's an five. Easy five. Fives all around. And we have a final tally for Japan. We'll go category by category. Yeah. We gave Japan a five on cuisine, one of the goat countries on food. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. that's going to be tough to beat. I know yeah, a few yeah, contenders, tough. but yeah, yeah. that's a very fair ceiling. A four on sport, actually. Thanks quite generous, to quite generous. But generous, then again, potentially. Then again, let's, let's stick to that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Martial arts. So their contributions to the pop culture in terms mm-hmm. of sport have been Huge. immense, we think. Mm-hmm. Music at two. Mm-hmm. Literature at two. So those are their two lowest scoring categories. Yeah. yeah. But film and TV, out of nowhere, a 4.5. Quite strong. 4.5, driven by your 5. Yeah. And on the wildcard gaming, 5's all around, mm. unanimous, which actually takes us to a final score of 22.5 for Japan. Very, very strong score. Significant. Yeah. Sweden, which did fantastically, was a 19.5. Still a respectable respectable score for Sweden, but, I mean, this... This is no surprise to me. I mean, Japan is just so ridiculously influential on the world stage. Despite, let's say, it's, it's kind of mm, waning uh, strength, let's say, in the global stage. Like, it's it's not a country that we talk about as a superpower economically, right? But Not anymore, not, right? Not anymore. It used to be the second biggest economy in the world. Exactly, exactly. So despite its waning influence on that front, still, pop culture-wise, I, I think we've, we've shown today it's an absolute powerhouse. Immense. I'm going, I'm very curious about when we visit their near neighbors, South Korea, mm. to see how uh, how we score there. 100%. With their rival. Time will tell. So, well done to Japan. Really well done to Japan. Our second country on the pop culture country tier list. Now in first place with Sweden in second. We'll see what's next, listeners. We'll be back with more. Neil, any thoughts? Just great to be back. I think the the keen listener will know we've actually been dark for two weeks. We had a a lot going on outside of the the pod world. Everything. And it's great to be back. And I think that's a real explanation as to how we managed to go a bit longer than normal on this episode. I think we we had a lot to say. We had a lot to get out of our our minds and into the mics. So thanks for bearing with us as we uh, took an extra bumper episode today. And I think uh, it'll be business as usual from again. We we do try to keep it around the hour mark. We know that's that's what our listeners prefer. So from next time, I think you'll find we're back on a a sharp uh, sharp one-hour agenda. Absolutely. Thank you, Neil Fitzpatrick. Thank you, Nicola Volpe, as ever, and talk to you next time. 